0: everybody I'm Patricia Duff and uh, very happy to welcome you and our especially amazing speakers today to the common good um, so we will get right to the conversation this year the convention has had to be reimagined so it is a very unique year in many respects um, and that's why we needed a top team to dissect it I'm very excited about each of our guests but first of all I just want to th- uh, say that we have great respect for the Fourth Estate. Uh, we laud the work of the press as one of the most important pillars of our democracy, and so we are thrilled to have um, our guest today. First of all, Ron Brownstein. I've known Ron and his work for decades. He's been an important reporter on the national political scene as the director, political director of the Atlantic Media Company, the editorial director of National Journal, and a senior political analyst for CNN. He's been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize twice, where he was cited for the clarity, consistency, and quality of his political reporting. And this is the first time in a very long time that Ron and I have not been able to spend some time pivoting about the candidates at a convention in many, many years. So welcome, Ron. Karen Finney. Karen has been a respected and important political advisor for many years. She's a CNN political commentator She was a senior advisor to Georgia gubernatorial candidate, Stacey Abrams, the Democratic National Committee. And of course, she served as senior advisor for communications and political outreach for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. So she's an amazing strategist. Um, She hosted her own show on MSNBC, Disrupt with Karen Finney. and She was the Democratic National Committee's first African-American spokeswoman. So we are very honored to have you today with us, Karen and to moderate the conversation with such best special guests we had to have a very special moderator to help us out and we do we have the amazing the iconic the legendary Dan Rather very honored to have one of the all-time great reporters and anchors with us Um, like many in the audience today I grew up with Dan Rather I relied on his hard-hitting and unstinting news coverage and analysis through some of the nation's most momentous events. As you know, he has interviewed every president since Eisenhower. He's personally covered almost every important dateline in the United States and around the world. Um, and we are thrilled to have you with us. So Dan, you're the pro. I am going to let you take it away from here. Thank you so much, for all of you, for joining us.
1: Well, thank you very much, Tricia, and hello, everybody. Let's get right to it, because among other things, I'm very interested to hear what uh, Ron and Karen have say, what their takeaway. Now that the Democratic National Convention is behind us, and a, a what is widely expected to be an especially brutal uh, election campaign is uh, just around the corner, uh, very quickly, uh, and you know it will be short because I say I want to hear what Ron has to say and Karen has to say. Uh, my own takeaway was that the, this convention did give the party, which is one of the things the convention is designed to do, to give the party uh, an infusion of hope optimism and enthusiasm. Sometimes conventions do it, sometimes they don't. But this convention, uh, I think the Democrats gave gave themselves a very good chance of doing this. At this moment, and it can change as we all know in politics very quickly, the Democratic Party is a party that's beginning to believe that it can win. There are sections of the party that think it's possible they could win and win big. They know that to to win it all depends on getting an overwhelming vote from their base and being able to woo, uh, quote, independence and so-called swing voters uh, their way. But mixed with that is this fear, the fear that no matter how well they do, somehow another combination of electoral college math and the chicanery of uh, President Trump Uh, will send him down to defeat again. So it's it's a mixture, but we should know that the Democrats walk out with this this growing feeling, which I'm not sure the party had before the convention. You know what, we can win this thing. And if everything breaks just right, God smiles and we get lucky, maybe we could win big. That's no no small accomplishment. So now having said that, uh, let's go to Karen. What's your take uh, on where the party is and where they're headed as they come out of this convention?
2: Well, thank you so much, Dan. What an honor to be here with you and with Ron and Patricia and and everyone with the common good. Uh, I agree 100%. I was, uh, you know, I think like so many folks, curious to see how this unconventional convention would go because there is something when you're, I mean, it's sort of a double-edged sword. When you're in the hall, you know, the energy and the excitement and the feeling and the cheering is part of what gets you excited and, and you know rallied, right? Because the convention is really the moment for both parties, quite frankly, where you are trying to kind of rev up the troops, if you will, for this last big push. And I thought that the convention team did a really fantastic job uh, making use of the time and this new format. Uh, there are some things that happened that I think will, will have changed forever, like the way they did the roll call. I don't think anybody wants to go back to the way it used to be done. And I thought the speakers did a fantastic job of, and particularly, uh, you know, I hate to say the phrase, regular people, normal people were so powerful and, I, and connected, I think, with folks at home who might've been wa- who are watching to remind that, that us that we have shared values and shared challenges. I think they did a good job of making the case for why Joe Biden uh, is the person in this moment. And I agree with you. I think, you know, there's been so much heartache and heartbreak since 2016 and, you know, feeling that the task of winning is almost too big. I think the victories in 2018, quite frankly, the congressional victories and others around the country helped to move Democrats towards believing. Uh, And certainly, I think this convention and Joe Biden's fantastic speech, I certainly felt inspired. And I'm pretty cynical. I've been in, you know, politics since the 90s, so I wasn't sure, uh, you know, if I was would have that feeling at the end, but I certainly did. The last thing I would add, though, as well is I think the addition of Kamala Harris to the ticket. Has, we've, we've seen a real deepening uh, and, and broadening of energy and enthusiasm for the ticket, and one of the things, you know, the combination of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, I think, is really inspiring Democrats. I think you're seeing young people saying how they can see themselves uh, in her, and that is part of the connection to believing that voting matters. I think that's going to be the next big task coming out of this convention. That okay, now we're feeling good. We've talked about our values. We we're, we're standing behind our candidates, and now we've got to do the work. So I think Democrats come out feeling strong. Um, and, and definitely more unified. Senator Sanders did a wonderful job of making the case for why we need to come together. Uh, there are definitely still, you know, issues uh, and, and questions that people have, but I think people are ready to do the work, and that's really what you want coming out of a convention.
1: Absolutely, Ron. I want to go to you, but before I'm calling on Ron, I, I just hope that everybody recognizes where Ron stands uh, in the pantheon of modern. American political reporters. Uh, among other journalists, no one is more respected than Ron is. And Ron, it's in my pleasure and honor to be with you on this today.
3: Well, well, so,
4: thank you very much, Dan. Obviously,
3: coming from you. Talk, uh, yeah. you. Um, uh, look, I think you have to start with the backdrop. Uh, Joe Biden went into this convention in the strongest position of any challenger in modern times, except Bill Clinton in 92 and Jimmy Carter in 1976. I mean, there have been very few challengers. Even Ronald Reagan wasn't consistently polling over 50% going into their own convention. So, you know, what he had to achieve may have been less monumental than, than challengers often face. Um, I would say the convention was predominantly a success with one kind of dangling thread that I think Democrats did not fully kind of um, sew up. Uh, Take it in form and then and then substance. In form, it was a resounding success. I mean, necessity was very much the mother of invention, uh, as Karen said. I mean, this was a brilliantly reimagination, reimaginating event that was kind of you know lumbering toward the you know toward the dinosaur boneyard. I, I have felt the last few cycles. I mean, they've become so Leviathan. The security is so heavy post 9-11. In many ways, they they just feel like they were ready to kind of fall over of their own weight. And this was light and fresh and sometimes funny. And it brought in new voices. Because you weren't writing for the hall, you didn't have to write speeches with all these partisan zingers. I mean, they were much more conversational and crisp, talking to people. Could you imagine trying to do Barack Obama's speech about the gravity of this moment in a hall with people cheering? It would have totally undermined the message. if it was a partisan applause line, you know, he was saying this is bigger than Democrats. This is about democracy. And so I I think that, in, 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 form, they changed conventions forever. And that roll call, I mean, could not have been more sweet and goofy and calamari. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, was, it was, they took just the kind of the, the, the kind of the most high bound tradition and, and just totally rejuvenated it. Now, in terms of messaging, which is after all the, you know, a, a big part of this is, this is the moment where you have the country's attention. Uh, the Democrats did a lot of things well. Uh, they, they certainly grounded Biden in the middle class class. They simultaneously, as Karen said, enthused their base, but also while welcoming kind of a broad coalition I mean, people have compared, you know, uh, it, only slightly tongue-in-cheek uh, what the Democrats did this week a kind of the popular front against fascism in the 1930s. I mean, a kind of coalition from, from left uh, uh, to center. And I think they drove four big messages well. They drove, obviously, Biden's empathy, which was you know emphasized more than anything else and, and maybe got a little kind of repetitive by last night. Uh, mm-hmm. Their embrace of diversity and the changing America. I mean, that could not have been more clear on immigration, on racial justice, and other issues. Um, the uh, indictment of Trump on Corona, and then uh, and then and then unity uh, in this broad coalition. The one thing they did not do, I think, was offer a real laser-focused critique of Trump's performance on the economy. They, they did not drive. The, they were flicks at it, but they did not drive the argument that while he promised to protect the middle class, in office he's really done more to enrich his friends, uh, his rich friends. Uh, he is not. He is not your champion the way he betrays himself. And here are all the ways I'm. Going going to make your life better. Joe Biden did a little of that last night, and Elizabeth Warren probably did the most in her speech. But it was much more about unity amid diversity, rather than, um, I think, a very kitchen table, lunch bucket kind of message. And that kind of leaves open the only plausible path for Trump, which is not to win the popular vote, but to turn out just enough non-college older and rural whites to win those last few electoral college states.
1: Well, you're talking about things the Democrats didn't do with the convention, I think we, we're in agreement here that the Democrats did much of what they had to do with the convention, and they could rightfully feel pretty good about what they did, particularly yeah. the production values, which you mentioned, Ron, as as you a know, child of television, so to speak, I can tell you that the the producers of, of the television spectacular, of the, of the show itself, deserve an Emmy Award, and they probably have changed the the nature of uh, conventions going forward forever, we'll see about that. But I can't imagine going to what was the standard for conventions uh, moving forward. they would be more like this convention than than what we call mainstream conventions before this. That's just my opinion. But I want to come back to you. You, you talked about the things that the Democrats did right and the they some reasons they should feel good about the convention. But come on, let's let's talk now about things that said to yourself, hmm, I wish they hadn't done that, or things they didn't do that you say yourself, I wish they hadn't done that.
2: Well, I will say that I, you know, I would have liked to, I don't, I agree um, with what Ron is saying about sort of the policy critique, but again, I think the challenge, I mean, there were definitely moments where I wanted to hear more of Joe Biden, Slightly, I agree that, you know, we heard a lot about what a good guy Joe Biden is, and that's important. I mean, I think they were trying to do something a little bit different, and rather than doing, you know, a lot of times convention speeches are very much around policy specifics, Uh, and as Ron said, the zingers, you know, the sort of red meat zingers, and I think they were trying to appeal more, make an argument based on values, and based on trying to make the argument that Joe Biden, he sees you. He hears you. He understands what you're going through. It's a little bit of the Bill Clinton, "I feel your pain." I he still feels, believe in a place called hope. I, that's what still, I was thinking last that night. That was my first convention, Rod. So you know that will forever <laughs> be in my heart. But I still I think, believe in a place called Thunder Mifflin. That's right. But also, as you point out, to to build that bridge uh for moderate republicans and independents and frankly even some democrats who need it who perhaps are voting for joe biden but for whom i mean the herculean task of what it's going to take to vote and the obstacles that are being put in front of us um, for this election i think you needing to get people as michelle obama pack a brown bag lunch, have dinner, have a snack in there, bring a chair, be ready. Um, But no, look, I I agree. There were a couple of cringeworthy um, production moments, having been in television (laughs) myself, where I thought, okay, we're going to need to work on that. And I would have certainly liked to hear a little bit more of the, here's how your life will change if I'm president. Because one of the things that we know increasingly, particularly with younger voters, is this disconnection between how does my vote change my life? Um, and so I think making a more direct connection on a number of issues might've been, uh, I would have liked to see that. But again, I think that they were going for something a little bit different. And look, I also get the challenge that, you know, so it was two hours each night, the networks were only carrying 10 to 11. Right. And so I think they were, they were conscientious about having a lot to do, not a lot of time to do it. And thinking that, you know, particularly on television, someone's not gonna sit there for a long policy speech. So, policy was more conveyed by farmers and, uh, you know, labor union workers and small business owners. And I actually thought that was pretty effective. Um, but again, sure, a little bit more of the, and here's what Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are gonna do about it. The last thing I would say, I just, I would be remiss if I didn't say, as a, as a black woman uh, in this country, the, the amount of uh, diversity and representation and the conversations about systemic racism um, and the conversations about uh, the need to completely overhaul our criminal justice system I can't tell you what that means. And that is really important because one of the challenges, I think, going into this convention is, so Biden is in in a strong position, no question. And we're trying to reach out to moderate Republicans, but you've got to hold the base. You cannot take black and brown voters for granted. And I say this as someone who in 2016 and worked on Hillary's campaign felt frustrated that I think we did that to a certain degree at the expense of trying to bring in those those moderate Republicans. And so I thought that was a really important part of um, the last four nights as we've seen it. Now, some people wanted more specifics on those issues, but again, I think really making people feel seen and heard uh, was critical and making the case, I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, the argument they were trying to make is, you can trust Joe Biden. All the, you know, go to the website and look up the policy specifics. You can't trust Donald Trump, I think was, was one of the key arguments being made. In addition to the fact that he's, you know, messed up, messed, uh, his leadership has been wholly inadequate. And as, they, as people said over and over again, he's not up to the job. I think the point was to say, and here's a guy who is up to the job and you just gotta vote
1: for him. Well, I think the party can feel very good about conveying the message. We are the party of inclusion. And Donald Trump and the Trump Republican Party represent the opposite of that. But Ron, let me turn to you on the two things that tend to be at, look at it objectively, where I think the Democrats may have left themselves, in one case, somewhat vulnerable, and in the other, perhaps very vulnerable. The first is whether it's true or untrue that it was designed to be this way, there is a feeling among uh, any number of people. of uh, uh, Hispanic heritage, with whom I've talked, that the convention was short on appeal to Latino voters. And keep in mind, as you and I know, that the Democrats, in addition, depend depend always on a big turnout in the African American community. The party depends on winning a large percentage, an extraordinary large percentage of Latino voters. Was it your impression, do you agree, that they didn't, while they, they hit the inclusion thing in general very well, and the appeal to African-Americans very strongly that the Latinos may justifiably feel that the party is taking them for granted.
3: Well, they certainly didn't emphasize Latinos as much as, uh, as African-Americans. And the fact that Julian Castro was excluded, understandably, after his kind of remark about whether you know at one of the debates maybe uh, about Biden's mental acuity, but the fact that he was kind of rather pointedly excluded from the group reunion of the candidates last night, you know, continued what we saw. Now, having said that, I, I would note that I think in the immigration section, there, there really was only one big policy chunk of the of the convention, the first hour Wednesday night, um, and they did a, a, a kind of an interesting sequence. They did guns, uh, they did immigration, they did cl- guns, climate, immigration, and women's rights, and those are all issues that you know motivate different elements of the of the of the modern coalition and on immigration they did go further than just kind of the apple pie daca kids i mean they talked about parents who came here illegally and and making a place for them and i was wondering you know what the party chairman in Wisconsin was thinking is that that was that was edgy. I mean that was that was taking some risk. Um, you know as they as they did that, but overall uh, I, I I think that is a fair criticism. Now. One other point electorally, you know, as Karen knows, very painfully, African-American turnout from 2012 to 2016 dropped seven points, the biggest election to election decline in American history. So there's reason, there's precedent for that turnout being higher, and there's reason for Democrats to hope that with Kamala Harris on the ticket and a more focused effort, they can raise that. They have never demonstrated they can significantly increase Hispanic turnout beyond its kind of general slow drift up. Um, Obviously, the number of Hispanics are eligible, the denominator gets bigger, significantly bigger every four years. But they really have never shown they can improve the numerator. you know, the the share of that eligible population that grows. So they may, you know, deep down in their heart of hearts, may be more expecting uh, a significant increase among African-Americans than among Hispanics relative to 2016.
1: Well, the other part that I was going to say is that if, if you're saying to yourself, where have the Democrats left themselves vulnerable, I wouldn't say the convention exposed the vulnerability, but let me come again directly at it, Ron. In one modern presidential campaign after another, the party that plays the the, the divisive race card has been the Republican Party, and it has been a winning strategy. Richard Nixon used it to win in 1968. Ronald Reagan, to no small degree, used it to win in 1980. Uh, uh, George H.W. Bush used it with the important ad and so forth to come from behind and win in 1988. And again, Trump used it to no small advantage in 2016. And it goes this way, Donald Trump is going to go low road. He's following the the Nixon, Reagan, George H.W. Bush and his own thing of hit the race card very hard and play on fears. And within that, directly, he's going after people who live in suburbia. And if you have to go even finer than that, the, the white housewife in suburbia. He's saying, "Look at the television. See what the, what riots in Chicago, Seattle, you know, uh, uh, Portland, all of this, in quotes look like." The point is, why am I not believe what, not to believe? If I'm not fellow, this won't be another successful strategy. No he's going to use it. Why am I to believe if I am to believe they won't be successful this time?
3: Yeah, it it is obviously a critical question. Look, I mean, Trump uh, is appealing to racial resentment, and not only racial resentment, but fear of cultural change more overtly than any candidate since George Wallace in 1968. Um, you can kind of separate this question into, into, two, into two categories. I mean, in terms of the popular vote, the reality is that when Richard Nixon ran on law and order uh, in 1968, non-college whites, who are the core target for this, uh, were almost 80% of all the voters, and college whites were about another 13%. Minorities were less than 1 in 10 voters, even as late as 1980, uh, 80% of the population was still white. Uh, we are a much more diverse country today. Uh, non-college whites, who are, again are, are Trump's core base and, and the principal target for these messages, they're probably gonna be somewhere closer to 40% of the voters uh, this time. Uh, college whites and uh, people of color will both be about 30% each of the voters this time. And that change, Dan, is I think the reason why Democrats have won the popular vote uh, in six out of seven. Uh, and if Biden wins the popular vote, they will won the popular vote in seven out of eight, which no party has ever done since the formation of the modern party system in 1828. But the, the kind of the, 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 the isthmus they have to pass through to make that, until they can start winning states like yours in Texas and North Carolina and Arizona and Georgia, where this diversity is, in fact, reshaping the electorate, but more whites vote, uh, a higher share of whites vote Republican, until they can start winning those states, they still have to pass through the isthmus of the upper Midwest and win some combination of Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and Wisconsin. And in those states, non-college whites the the audience for the principal audience for Trump's message are a bigger share of the electorate. And uh, you know, I I think it is highly unlikely Trump wins the popular vote, but it's not inconceivable that even if he loses all the states Hillary lost, loses Michigan and Pennsylvania, he can draw the line there and hold Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina by tiny margins uh, based on huge margins and turnout among older rural and blue collar whites, plus probably some voter suppression. And that's why I think that I felt there was a little bit of a blind spot in the convention where they focus on all of these issues of kind of, uh, you know, that, that move that socially move the modern Democratic coalition and maybe didn't say quite enough that those blue collar voters are still gonna have to win in the upper Midwest if they can't flip North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, or Florida.
2: Can I make one point on that, if I, if yeah, I may? You. Because I, I, I agree, although I would make the point that I think part of what the convention was geared toward and part of, what, you know, I'm working in a number of races, one including uh, Jamie Harrison's race in South Carolina. And one of the things that we're, we've seen continuously in focus groups is, you know, white college educated, and some white non-college educated voters who voted for Trump, who are now saying, you know, I voted for him because I, I wanted change. I wanted somebody to shake things up, but not like this. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I meant. And particularly, Ron, I know you know this as well as anyone, uh, those white suburban women. Who have been moving away from Donald Trump uh, since 2017, quite frankly, and, and ha- continue to move. And what they will say, what they tend to say, is it's the divisiveness, it's the meanness, it's not good for my children. Um, I don't, you know, and just the feeling of discomfort that that goes beyond, I think, even the normal. I hate to say normal partisan rancor, um, that bitterness. And then at the same time, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, you see increasingly. Uh, white voters, Midwestern white voters and, and battleground state white voters saying, you know, racism and, and systemic racism is, is, is really damaging to this country and we, we need to do something about it. So I think part of the message of inclusion and part of the some of these more uh, softer messages, maybe is, is the way to think about it, is I think in part to say to people, if you're tired of the rancor and divisiveness and what some, a lot of voters call just meanness. Here's a different option. Here's, here's a president who's going to, you know, be the grown-up in the room. You can rest easy. Uh, you, you don't have to worry about turning on the news uh, with your children in the room for what the president might have said. Now, I agree. It's a gamble. We'll see if that works, but I certainly think that was, that is part of the strategy and part of the goal. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say, you know, particularly if you look at, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. In the places, I mean, remember that Hillary lost those uh, states, uh, particularly Wisconsin and Michigan by 20 so thousand votes. That margin in the places where she underperformed were largely African-American areas. And I actually did a project after the election and went back and talked to uh, Latino and African-American young people who didn't, these were people who had voted for Obama and chose not to vote for Hillary. And a lot of what they said was they just didn't feel like anybody was talking to them. And so I think that's the duality of what Democrats are trying to accomplish this, this year is how do we appeal both to those Republicans who are moving away, but make sure that we're holding on to and able to have high African American and Latino uh, turnout. So whether or not the convention did everything it needed to do to get to folks is is yet another question. But I think that was part, that was the duality of the goal there in many ways.
3: Can I jump in and and, and make a comment and then also ask Karen a question? I mean, if you look at what's happening in the, I mean, Trump is clearly creating unprecedented opportunities for Democrats to expand the map because of the way he is driving away previously Republican-leading college white uh, suburbanites, even now in the South. Um, And, you know, I've looked at polling recently, North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Trump is still winning 70% of non-college whites in those states. And I'm guessing the number is very similar in South Carolina. But two other things are happening, which is that you are seeing evidence that the the decline in black turnout from 12 to 16 is reversing. We saw that in 18, it might reverse in 20. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you see Democrats are moving from what had been the 20s among college whites in the South, into the high 30s or low 40s in places like Georgia, um, uh, North Carolina, uh, and Texas. Um, they've got to probably, I, I, I would guess South Carolina is probably a couple beats behind, but in that same general trajectory. And my question, I mean, basically, the formula for Democrats to flip states like Georgia and Texas, I think, is to get that African American and Latino turnout in some cases back up. And to get into the mid 40s among college whites, that's all they really have to do. Um, they, uh, it's hard, though. I mean, it, it, it's yeah. harder than it is in Colorado and Connecticut and California because more of the college whites are evangelicals, more of them are conservative. But I'm wondering, uh, Karen, are you seeing, you know, relative to Lindsey Graham probably won 75% of college whites in 2014? I'm wondering if that, if you're seeing Jamie Harrison move closer to 40 or above 40.
2: We're getting closer, obviously, uh, and you know I also am someone who um, polls always make me nervous until it's yeah. election day. Um, there is a huge dissatisfaction with Lindsey Graham and people feeling as though, uh, and this is among white voters. Um, and the, the the voters numerically they're there. We you know we know they're there in terms of the 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 size of the the black vote, the eligible popular voting population, um, and we believe that. Um, we're seeing movement in the white vote. Now, President Trump is still very popular in South Carolina, so that's going to be the other challenge in these down-ballot races. Uh, he may still, to, to what you were saying, be able to you know, get people over the top with his popularity in some of these states that are still very, very tough for Democrats. Yeah.
1: Well, if I may say that uh, there's some talk here about Biden's possibility of carrying taxes. Uh, <laughs> Well, this has been the talk among Democrats for about the last three or four uh, presidential election cycles that uh, hope springs eternal. Texas is a deeply red state. No one should make any mistake about that. And it would take quite a bit to win the state for Biden. Uh, Most political operatives in the state that I talked to think it's odds against that Biden can carry Texas, but that there is a possibility. Now, this gets back to the convention. any number of Texas Democrats were concerned. They thought the the convention was sort of California oriented. This may or may not be a legitimate criticism, but I've heard it time and time again. And there wasn't any overt effort to say, well, okay, let's do something convention that gives a salute to Texas. It may be that Texas, you know, gets his feelings hurt if he can't be centered for everything. But I do want to say that in Texas, and I think this is true, I could be wrong, in many places in the country, that the the backside of appealing to uh, defunding the police and, and taking a new attitude toward police uh, has had a deep impact uh, in this state and in Texas. And I do think, at least for the moment, the idea of defunding the police, quote, unquote, let me make clear that I understand. You'll understand the, the the moral imperative in saying we have to do something to reform police, but as as a political fact of life, it has given a lot of people pause when you start start talking about as there has been talk of things like quote do away with 911. Well, what the reason for a Burgers' new home, But this this has the potential of being a, a very effective counterattack. Uh, by President Trump. Ron, is there any doubt in your mind that beginning with the Republican Committee next week, we're going to hear Trump go a, a good deal along that line?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I, Biden. I, I was struck that Biden and, and the Democrats really did not put in what we call in journalism the to be sure paragraph. I mean, he has said it in an interview. You know, uh, he has said it earlier. You know, to be sure, most police officers are good, but we've got to focus on you know the structural problems. Uh, they didn't really do very much of that. I mean, they they leaned in heavily to uh, structural racism, which I, I'm trying to remember, Karen. I think it was a controversial. When, when Hillary Clinton even used the phrase in 2016, there was like some eyebrows or fluttering or tut-tut-tuttering in the, in the Democratic Party. And it shows how much the debate uh, the debate has has moved. And this really is, to me, a core question. And, and, and let's, let's look at Texas as, as, a, as a classic example. I believe that what Donald Trump is sentencing the Republican Party to is a very clear strategy of squeezing bigger margins out of shrinking groups at the price of alienating the groups that are growing uh, in society. If you look at Beto O'Rourke's 2018 Texas uh, uh, race, he won, Dan, as you probably know, the five biggest counties. Dallas, Houston, Bear, Travis, and Tarrant by 780,000 votes, which was six times as much as Obama won them by in 2012. Uh, Still wasn't enough to win because Ted Cruz won every rural small town place by unbelievable margins, three quarters of the, you know, three quarters or more. But the population growth and the job growth is in the places that Democrats are now winning in Texas. And, um, you know, I, you know, Trump almost certainly will hold on to Texas by squeezing out enough rural votes. But it's not inconceivable he's going to lose the four big metro areas in Texas by a million votes combined. Uh, Beto, by the way, was the first Democrat, top of the ticket Democrat since LBJ in 64 to win all four of the biggest metros uh, in Texas. So if you're, if you're a Republican and you're looking at that, one, one Republican said to me, that would be an apocalypse, even if Trump won the state, because it would mean that we're losing all the metros. We might lose the state house where all the uh, you know, uh, competitive seats are in the suburban metros. And um, we would probably lose several more congressional seats. And that's what's happening in every state in the country. The Republicans are consolidating their hold on non-metro, small-town rural places, North Carolina, another good example. But they are losing ground under Trump in the way he has defined the party in all of the growing, thriving, info-age, diverse, tolerant, inclusive metros. Maricopa County in Arizona was the largest county in America that Trump won. Um, Democrats have won it almost never over the last decade. He's trailing by eight or 10 points in polling there. And you know, I, I will go out on a limb and say, if he loses Maricopa County, there is no chance he will be president. Um, So, I think that, uh, yes, Trump is going back to the argument, trying to win back, particularly, I think, college white suburban men, not so much the women who are gone to him, by saying Democrats are going to let maraudering hordes of, you know, Soto Voce black people come in front of, I mean, they're having the couple who brandish their guns at protesters in St. Louis speak at the convention. By the way, I predicted that that day on Twitter, (laughs) that they would end up speaking at the Republican convention. So, they are all in on this strategy. I think the difference, though, from, and you tell me, from the Nixon era. When Nixon promised white suburbanites law and order, they thought he could deliver it. I think the polling is pretty clear and now that a lot of white suburbanites think that Trump's approach by being so volatile, so belligerent, and so confrontational actually increases the risk of disorder and makes them more vulnerable, uh, rather than that he is kind of this human wall, which is what he's running as, between you and these minority hordes that are, you know, burn, and, and leftist hordes that are burning down cities.
1: When well, I see that Patricia Duff is entered uh, up, so tells me we're getting close to the time. when we move the questions from the audience. But as we go away from this particular segment, Patricia, and I throw it back to you, and we go to the questions. Let me point out which uh, what is the obvious, but in the enthusiasm uh, and in the wake of a, something like the Democratic Convention, it's a little tempting to forget it. Uh, that overnight's a long time in politics. It's yes. forever. And the election is still a long way off until November. So just gently, I would say, uh, don't forget that it's still a long time of the election. Expect the unexpected. Uh, what we most expect uh, may not occur. What we least expect may happen as we go into what I'm, I think will be a particularly nasty campaign. I expect this campaign to be nasty enough to gag a buzzard uh, that President Trump is going to go very low, very negative. So we might keep those things in mind uh, as we make the turn to the Republican Convention. Patricia?
0: Thank you so much. That was excellent. Uh, we've got a few questions on uh, the deck here. Chris Faboder, do you want to start? Hi. Uh, I wanted to know if you all felt that after Biden spoke, did we, Are we closer to the tipping point where, where our party's gonna come back together? Because for the last six years, the DNC has been falling
2: apart all over the place. But I felt something different last night after he spoke. Like, like finally, this might be happening again, that we will come together uh, t- to go forward together.
0: And I just wanted to know what you all felt about that.
2: Yeah, you know, I'll I'll take the first crack at that one. Look, I think part of what is different this time, and you certainly heard Michelle Obama speak to it, you heard uh, President Obama speak to it and others. uh, I think that frankly, uh, having, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton should have spoken no matter what, but I think she is a reminder you cannot take anything for granted. And in ways that in 2016, I think, you know, we didn't quite know Donald Trump. And that's why, you know, some folks thought, okay, well let's give this a try, let's see what happens. And some Democrats felt like they could vote for third party or not vote at all because as a protest, I don't think you hear people, that's not cool this time to put it, you know, in the vernacular. Um, You know, I think that part of what is bringing people together is a focus on something bigger, which is, you know, and something that I sometimes say to younger people is, you know, do we want to be having these conversations and and fights and this movement forward for our rights with Donald Trump or Joe Biden? And I think that so people are in part unified because they realize what's at stake in a way that perhaps we haven't. And you know, Dan and Ron know this. We all, in every election, we say it's the most important election of our lifetime, and you know, all of that that rhetoric. And yet this time, I think people feel it very deeply. Um, So I, I to your question, I hope so. I think the fact that Senator Sanders has been working very hard to bring his supporters into the fold, quite frankly, in a way he didn't quite do uh, in 2016. I think that's, that is that is a big help. And again, I think just the sense of what is at stake and the danger that four more years of Donald Trump poses to the country, from our perspective as Democrats, I should say, and those Republicans who are supporting Joe Biden. So I I certainly hope so. And, you know, I think that doesn't mean that if Joe Biden is elected, the work doesn't continue. Um, You know, I also happen to be on the board of NARAL. And so when it comes to, you know, uh, abortion rights, that's something that we'll certainly continue to keep working on, uh, you know, for civil rights and for criminal justice reforms. But I think many people recognize they'd rather be trying to do that work with a Joe Biden uh, than with a Donald Trump. And I think this decency point really matters. I think people are starting to understand that it matters to have a president who it, who sees you, hears you, understands the challenges and actually cares more about that than, he, than they do uh, the, their own, uh, well-being and you know, we, we just very quickly we haven't even talked about COVID. I think that the ravages of COVID, which we did talk a lot about during the Convention, what that is doing to people, the impact that's having to, on people and the fact that we can see in our daily lives that what Trump is telling us Is not true in ways that are more stark than I think some of the other issues we've dealt with over the last four years. Uh, absolutely, I think, are bringing people together to recognize that we've got to work together for going to remove Donald Trump from office and elect in uh, a new
3: president. A very quick add, in practical terms, Democrats don't have to worry this time nearly as much as 16 about people voting for third party or much less voting for Trump. I think the toggle is voting or not voting at all. And that is really, uh, you know, among younger voters, especially younger non-white voters, and that is the piece that is the least <laughs> clear for Democrats going in. And you know, they made a terrific effort at the convention; they could not have done more to highlight young people at this convention. I talked to organizers who work on, on on trying to mobilize young people who are very happy with that, but. Joe Biden is a 77-year-old white guy. And in the end, there may be a limit to how many younger African-American and Latino voters he will ultimately inspire to to turn out, uh, especially during a pandemic, even with Kamala on the ticket. But I think that is the issue for Democrats above all, whether younger, particularly non-white younger people, uh, show up in November in bigger numbers than they did in 2016.
0: Uh, We have a question from Ralph Dawson in a second. But I wanted to uh, ask, a lot of people that I talk to who are still for Trump um, think that the Democrats are are part of the socialist radical left, and I'm actually amazed at how many people really believe that uh, deeply. I'm wondering if you think uh, Biden's uh, convention uh, addressed that at all.
2: I certainly think we attempted to. I don't think you heard uh, much about socialism and radicalism. I thought it was a pretty uh, you know, and again, Dan was asking about criticisms. I do think we, there, you know, as a progressive, there were certain things I would have liked to see a little bit more of in terms of, you know, our fundamental progressive uh, values and issues. But as a, as a tactician, I understand that the goal was uh, to try to have a little bit more of something for everybody and, to, and, and frankly, to present uh, Joe Biden as a, you know, decent, caring human being and to get away from this idea of, uh, you know, socialism and what have you. And so I think we did that in the convention, but, but Patricia, you bring up such an important point, which I'll just be very brief on, and that is the level of misinformation and disinformation and it, that, that we're going to be seeing in this election is part of what's gonna make it just a Herculean task. And it's not going to necessarily be out front and center on our television screens. It's going to be, as we learned after 2016, it's on. You know, it's happening online uh, in the ways that people are are being. You know, almost brainwashed uh, with misinformation. So combating that is a huge
3: challenge. Uh, real quick, and Patricia, I really want to leave time to ask Anna a question at the end myself. Yes, you <laughs> yes. did um, absolutely. But, but uh, I would say, look. Uh, the fundamental dividing line in the electorate is now more culture than class. I mean, if if you look at, I I really believe that the the two coalitions are defined by a democratic coalition that largely welcomes the way America is changing, demographic, culturally, and even economically, and a Republican coalition that fears or or resents it. Uh, And in that, once that new line is is, is cut through the electorate, people kind of get unmoored on both sides of it. Obviously, we saw all of the Obama-Trump voters, all those blue-collar whites who may have liked Democrats for Social Security or Medicare. Medicare, but were more drawn to Trump's kind of racial nationalism in 2016, and the reverse is happening in 2020. I mean, Biden has the potential to win something very close to 60% of college-educated white voters, three quarters of Asian-American voters. I mean, Democrats; those are very high numbers uh, on both fronts. But what it all what it means is that Democrats are now winning voters who agree with them culturally, who, who welcome the changing, diverse America, who do not want to be associated with QAnon and the open racism of Donald Trump. But they may not they may not be fully on board with his expansive. Role for government as Karen uh, and many of the more traditional uh, democratic voters. So that is a point of, of, of tension and friction. Trump you know, seems not inclined to do that primarily, uh, to try to win those voters back. He's like kind of doubling down on George Wallace and in the process reaffirming all the things that are driving them away while energizing what is his core base of older blue collar and and, um, non-urban white voters. So I do think that's a tension and you see it, uh, for example, in how few of the Democrats uh, won in 2018 from suburban districts, basically none, have endorsed Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. They don't think they can sell that to their constituency. It's going to be a challenge for Democrats going forward, but Trump doesn't seem to be positioned to make that work for him and to uh, wedge those voters back away from uh, Biden before November.
0: Do you want to ask Dan that question first, and then we'll get to some more questions from the audience. Yes.
3: And Karen and I is a joint question. Dan, you have been to so many conventions. You have been on the floor of so many conventions. You've had memorable moments. What is your most memorable convention moment uh, in your long career?
1: Well, clearly, 1968, Democratic convention, 1968. The Republican convention that year was uh, a pretty tumultuous affair of, uh, of its own. but. Uh, the Democratic Convention, where Hubert Humphrey was finally nominated uh, to oppose Richard Nixon, it was a desperate effort, and I use the word majorly, a desperate effort to keep the lid on. That is, to give some picture of party unity in the country together, but it was not to be. And for the whole world to see, there was uh, violence and plenty against protesters, against the war and other things on the outside, and inside the hall, of uh, the effort by Mayor Daley and the Democratic establishment to sort of put forth a picture from inside the hall and everything's okay, just fell apart. So I would say uh, no contest at that Democratic convention in 1968, but I will say this, I have never been to a dull convention. I've been to every Democratic and Republican convention beginning in 1960, every one, and I've never been to a dull one, including this just completed virtual convention, but all by the Democrats. Thanks.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, it's actually amazing to me how important the role of the press is to Karen's point about uh, uh, misinformation out there because we do have two parallel universes. So I'm hoping the Democrats will also uh, speak on Fox and vice versa. But um, let's go to Ralph Dawson.
4: Hey, Karen, a quick question for you and and uh, one for Ron Brownstein. Uh, Karen, you I felt that uh, the convention did a good job of trying to pull back the Midwest, but Mm -hmm. I didn't see much, I think, that could affect Florida. And Mm -hmm. the way I look at it, if we get Florida and any other swing state, we're golden. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's what's your view on that? And for Ron, um, I think that it's very important that, we play up, and Obama did a little bit, the, the importance of voting on election day itself, because if Trump is able to claim at 11 o'clock on election night that he's ahead, we have big problems ahead. Uh,
2: so Florida, very briefly, in my anytime anybody says Florida, I think of uh, the venerable Tim Russert with his little whiteboard, Florida, 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 right? Uh, Florida is very important, and I think it's an excellent point. I honestly hadn't, hadn't thought about it. Um, I think some of the notes around immigration and some of the, the, the um, sort of more um, economic issues that were raised were perhaps meant in part for some Floridians, but you're right, there could have been Uh, a a much bigger uh, hat tipping to Florida. It's such a critical state. What I will say is that very quickly on balance, I think what you saw uh, is more of an emphasis on the West, New Mexico, Arizona, um, some of those states, and frankly, also the sort of Georgia, South Carolina, Jamie Harrison, uh, got quite a bit of airtime, more than I think a number of other uh, uh, Senate candidates than I've seen in in recent uh, history. So It's not that Florida isn't important, absolutely it is, but it seemed to me that perhaps they were trying to make, you know, sort of some hat tips to some other states where, um, I'm not saying we're gonna win South Carolina, by the way, uh, but particularly
3: some of those Western states. I think I saw Jamie Harrison more than Cal Cunningham, right? I mean, uh, who who has a, obviously has a better chance of, of, of winning, uh, your look. I, I would say not only is not only is there a point about election night itself, and Trump um, will inexorably argue that, that the election is being stolen uh, if, if vote counting goes on. And you know, you know what's going to happen. I mean, if you look at Arizona, Martha McSally in twenty eighteen was ahead on election night, and and Kirsten Sinema won pretty comfortably as they just counted the votes in Maricopa. Uh, you know, so it, it clearly. Uh, you know, Trump has driven down Republican interest in voting by mail, although in 2016, same share of Republicans and Democrats voted by mail. Now it's probably going to be many more Democrats. Um, Having said that, I do wonder if all of his uh, machinations is going to encourage kind of a hybrid where many Democrats request a ballot, but try to return it in person. And I don't know, you know, there was polling out yesterday in focus groups from Paige Gardner's group, the Voter Participation Center that showed enormous skepticism among African Americans about mailing back their ballot, that they basically think somebody's gonna put it on a shelf and never deliver it. So I'm guessing that in the end, uh, a lot of Democrats try to physically return their ballot. Uh, And by the way, that is not, in Colorado, which has an all mail system, I believe a majority of the ballots are returned in person. So yeah. I suspect there's going to be a lot of visits to the county election boards and the drop boxes. And I don't know how those are counted. I don't know the rules, whether states can start counting them on Election Day. Um, but I, I, I think that the number of people who just completely rely on the mail may be less than we think uh, because of everything Trump has done.
2: Can I just very quickly, because I'm actually on the board of End Citizens United and Let America Vote. Um, and there is a coalition that includes the Brennan Center, Stacey Abrams Group, Fair Fight, uh, the Leadership Council, civil rights organizations. The the emphasis really is, because of exactly what Ron was talking about, these these cultural biases and and fears about the male, is really to do all of it, right? It's going to be, they're going to, you know, it's an attempt to get people to do early in person, if if that's an option for them, uh, particularly where there's an option for social distancing, as well as, I think Ron's exactly right, more people are like going to, probably take that ballot and want to drop it in the box themselves. But also from a perspective, one of the conversations I think you're going to see us start to have uh, post-Republican convention is election night is not going to be like election night that we're used to. Just like everything else, it is forever changed. We're not going to have necessarily people standing at, you know, at the, uh, from the network, standing at the big wall, right, and trying to predict what how things are coming in because we just won't we simply won't know because uh, of mail-in voting uh, and and some of the other uh, and frankly dealing with some of the shenanigans we know that will go on I suspect that it's going to be a a couple nights at at least and we need to start preparing ourselves for
0: that Jamie can we go to you
3: Yeah, hi. Hi. Um, I want to thank all all of you Um, I especially want to thank Dan for your service to the country and the world Uh, so um, uh second i don't want to i thought the convention was a home run for especially for the what it had to deal with um but i don't want to play monday morning quarterback but i'd love you too um and the question being two-part really one um was it a missed opportunity how aoc was used not even to mention the confusion of nominating bernie which had its whole other aspects to it and then two just playing off what you said about jamie harrison Obviously, Jamie got to speak a little bit, but do you think it was a missed opportunity? Um, and I'm curious why it wasn't done, and maybe I'm missing something, to not have Jamie and Cal and John Ossoff and Sarah Gideon and Amy McGrath. I mean, I know they spoke a little bit, but to smoke speak even more to really help those races.
2: Do you want to go
3: first, Ron? Um, look, I mean, it's, you know, it's two hours a night and um, they, they're dealing with a limited funnel. Uh, they chose to really do a lot of Biden empathy, good guy, Uh, and that filled up a lot of time and um, you know the AOC thing uh, uh, I you know could she have spoken somewhere else for a couple of minutes. Um, you know, it's funny, you could have used her to do, to actually deal with what I was talking about, whether she, if she would have, what I was talking about before. I mean, you know, her story, she's a waitress, she was a waitress a couple of years ago and she's in a district where people are really struggling and, you know, she could have been used uh, not to deliver a kind of, to the battlements, you know, a transform America message, but like just kind of a very nuts and bolts, we got to improve the lives of working people message. And it's funny because Biden gave a speech a couple of weeks ago about the caring economy, you know, in contrast to pretty much every Democrat that I've covered since Gary Hart, who, talked to, who talks about the, the solution to kind of stagnant incomes as, as giving people more education and elevating them out of service jobs. He talked about making service jobs more remunerative, remunerative you know, making, them, making it possible to support a family on them. It's a very distinctive and kind of populist and embracing. Um, you could use her for that. Uh, uh, I'm sure she would have been totally down with that, Uh, uh, but, you know, look, they, you know, they obviously viewed her as a little bit of a lightning rod and didn't want to go very far down that road. And, you know, um, uh, she has a future. There's no question. She's gonna be a big part of the party, but she is not kind of the fulcrum of the party today.
2: You know, yeah, I'm a big fan of AOCs, but I really appreciated, for example, the way they did the keynote, and I would have liked to hear more from some of those folks, because we there are a hundred other AOCs, not to diminish her in any way, in our party, and we have so many amazing up-and-coming young leaders, and I think it's always important to show and hear from those voices and faces so that because you know democrats have this terrible habit of you know navel gazing and thinking oh my gosh we have nobody we have no talent and you know in that keynote i think we saw and and some of those folks were sprinkled throughout the the rest of the nights. we have a lot of good up and coming talent in this party that does represent the changing face of this country and, change, and and represents the core values of this party. So I would have liked to actually see more from more of those folks. Um, obviously, since I work with Jamie Harrison, I was perfectly happy to see him, uh, see as much of him as we did. Um, but I don't disagree. It w- given the limitations of the, the time, you, there just was not as much of an opportunity, I think, to uh, do as much as you would have done in a normal, con- quote-unquote, normal convention where you would have heard from more candidates. I certainly think that that's true.
0: Neely Gilbert, can you have a question? Yes,
2: I'd like to add my thanks to all of you for this timely discussion. Uh, I have an additional question about the math of vote by mail. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any good analysis of the, either the number of individual votes, or electoral votes that may be affected by how vote by mail trends progress from here. Um, And then secondly, I've heard that um, some Republican supporters, some some PACs have already started hiring lawyers to contest the outcomes of the election in sensitive districts. Uh, And I was wondering if you could just comment on that trend as well, thank
3: you. Uh, I'll start on the vote by mail real quick. 2016, one quarter of the ballots were by mail. Uh, most experts expect this before all of this, at least, there was going to be one in two vast increase um, in terms of the states that people care about the most uh, that are likely to decide the election. All six of the top swing states, the three Rust Belt states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, the three Sun Belt states, Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, and all of them, anyone can vote by mail for any reason. OK, Trump can't stop that. Um, uh, And for that matter, the next, the kind of penumbra of the next states that are kind of out there uh, and the next tier, Georgia, Iowa, Ohio also has, uh, anybody can vote by mail, Texas is the one exception where you have to have an excuse and it's very hard to do. Having said that, uh, there's a huge variation in those swing states in the extent to which even though you can vote by mail people actually have voted by mail North Carolina it's like five percent historically Pennsylvania it's like five percent Arizona and Arizona's three quarters Florida's about three and ten so there's a big variation in the extent to which people are, are kind of acculturated to doing this and also to which the state has the capacity to manage it and and deal with it uh, and that is probably going to be the biggest problem you know um, uh, you know, one reason why not every Democrat is like all in on vote by mail is because the evidence is pretty clear. Daniel Smith, the political scientist at University of Florida is our best authority on this, is that young people and people of color get disqualified more often. You know, the signatures don't match. Uh, there's something wrong with the way they, they sealed the ballot and they, there definitely is that risk. So um, that's a reality. I think a lot more people are obviously gonna vote by mail. In North Carolina, I think it's what 12 to one requests already from the same time in 2016. Um, But uh, I do think, as I said before, I think a lot of people will request a ballot by mail and return it in person, Karen.
2: Or I think that's right. I'll just uh, tack on at the end. Yes, this is going to be a campaign of lawyers (laughs) as much as it will be about the voters. Uh, And I know we all so many of us have the sort of nightmare feelings. I'm getting just shivers thinking about hanging chads of, of uh, 2000. But uh, again, this goes to what I was saying before that I think we have to prepare ourselves. And I think the civil rights organizations who are working on this are also uh, going to start trying to prepare the media for how we talk about what election night uh, is going to be because I expect that we will see um, a lot more in terms of legal battles in, in, you know, over the course of uh, not just that night, but you know c- the coming days. I mean, I worked on Stacey Abrams' race, and if any any of those who are following that, um, you know, we had a team of lawyers essentially ready to go uh, and deploy, you know, within hours, uh, and they've been been ready and preparing. You're seeing that on the Democratic side as well. I think both sides are are prepared for legal are preparing for legal challenges, both on the night of the election as well as in the days that follow. Um, and so, this is going to be an election like nothing we have ever uh, experienced for a whole host of reasons. You,
3: uh, Patricia, I just a real jump in. I know we're running out of time, but. Uh... The larger point really is the one that President Obama made. I mean, as I said, Republicans have lost the popular vote potentially now, seven out of eight, which no party has ever done in, in, in modern American history. And they are behaving like a party that believes they no longer have a majority of the country, but should still maintain power nonetheless. I mean, really, since 2010, but certainly since accelerating since Shelby County decision in 2013, uh, we have seen you know, probably the biggest wave of, uh, of efforts to make it harder to vote since the end of Reconstruction. In the 19th century, and and all of the things that President Trump is doing uh, with the postal service, with saying he's going to deploy federal agents and local sheriffs to, um, you know, polling places, uh, all of these kind of, uh, not to mention the way he's trying to rig and tilt the census, you are not hearing a lot of objection from anyone else in his party. I mean we don't really have a full language to, un- to, to describe what is happening here. I mean, we're kind of treating this like our, the traditional competition between two small d Democratic parties, but you have a Republican Party that is showing to me astonishing willingness to go down the road with him of trying to win whether or not uh, they, they have a majority of the country. And I just think that you know, if, you, if all of these things are happening, if, if so much of, of white America is open to kind of these tactics and the Trump's message of racial nationalism, when white Christians and non-college whites are a little over 40% of the electorate, why does anyone think they're gonna be more reasonable when it's, they're in the mid 30s or the high 30s? I mean, the 2020s could be a very stormy decade for America and it's not just election night or election week. Uh, To me, it's kind of, you know, transition decade uh, that we're looking at in in the coming years.
0: Well, you've been phenomenal. I want to make sure I give Dan Rather the last word.
3: Well,
1: uh, thank you very much. And this is, uh, I've learned a lot here, and I'm honored to take part. Uh, Let me pull back for what we call on television the wide shot, because I think it's very important that every American, whatever their party affiliation, or whomever they uh, are supporting, that one of the tests uh, of of a country such as ours, uh, a constitutional republic based on the principles of freedom and democracy, one of the crucial tests is always a peaceful transfer of power under pressure at the top. For example, when President Kennedy was assassinated, there wasn't any question at all that Lyndon Johnson was going to ascend to the presidency. It was a test of our democracy and we passed it big time, but that was way back in 1963. So whatever happens on election night, and there certainly is the prospect, there certainly could be a situation in which we won't know who won the election for many days, weeks, perhaps even a month or more after the election. And during that time, there will be stresses and strains on us as a country. And the principal question is going to be, will we once again meet the test of a democracy under pressure and have a peaceful transfer of power at the top or is it going to further divide a country and run further risk at destroying what we all hold so dear? Thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank you so much, all of you. We're so honored to have such a stellar panel. And Dan Rather, thank you so much for taking the time. Karen, Ron, so great to see you. Thank you all. We hope you'll come back for our next event with uh, uh, Jane Harmon and Michael Chertoff, the national former national head of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Lots of good conversations. Actually, we're doing the RNC next week, excuse me. And Dan Rather, <laughs> you're coming back. We're so glad we'll be uh, seeing you again. Thank you all. Thank you for
4: joining us.
3: Thanks having